listening to Assurance in Action, the podcast of your total quality assurance provider, Intertech. Today, our episode will be covering our supply chain assurance newsletter from the month of August. Uh, our Intertech experts, Justin Betty and Mary Osterman, will be discussing a few articles that they found interesting and what implications they see uh, within the industry. Uh, today, I'm joined by Mary Osterman and Justin Betty. Uh, how are you two doing today? Great, sir. Very well, thank well, you. Sir. Thanks for asking. Wonderful. So, uh, what did you see uh, this past month? Um, thanks, Seth. Yeah, I've read a number of articles, actually, some some really interesting ones this month. Um, my first article um, came from the um, the Apparel Insider Journal uh, relating to Uzbek cotton. Um, according to the uh, Apparel Insider, Uzbekistan's cotton sector took a step closer to coming in from the economic cold this week as civil rights groups, the Uzbek government, the IFC and other industry stakeholders reviewed a new responsible sourcing agreement framework, which could potentially provide a vehicle for brands and retailers to resume sourcing cotton from Uzbekistan, which, which would be really great. I mean, as we know, Brands and retailers have boycotted Uzbek cotton for a number of years now due to issues around forced labour in their annual cotton harvest. However, apparently a process of reform led by the Uzbek cotton sector has led to a steep reduction in the use of forced labour. Although it should be noted that civil rights groups claim it has not been eliminated completely. And stakeholders at this meeting argued that Uzbekistan provides an opportunity for brands looking to shift sourcing from the troubled region of Xinjiang, which, as we all know, is moving up both the political and ethical agenda of, of companies and indeed countries. And I, I think this is a really important step because cotton is one of the most widely used materials in the world, as we know, and ensuring that what you wear is ethically sourced has been a real challenge. So for me, th this was a good positive um, step. And I actually have a question to Mary, because uh, Mary, I noticed that you're um, wearing cotton today. So how important is it for you to know where and how that cotton was sourced? Well, Justin, I think most of us now with COVID-19 are pretty much wearing cotton t-shirts. So that's an easy one. Yeah. Um, but I'm glad you did ask because how and where something is sourced is important to me. And I'm glad that after years of all this boycotting, the Uzbek government is finally starting to realize that the benefits of a free and at-will workforce are much more beneficial to the Uzbek economy than the short-sightedness of that using cheap and forced labor. Yeah. Yep. So, yep. so along similar lines regarding labor issues, my first article is from Reuters and discusses how some garment factories are using COVID-19 to crack down on trade unions. We know that millions of garment workers have lost their jobs during COVID-19 pandemic as fashion brands have canceled orders and delayed payments. This has had a devastating impact on garment workers around the world, but it's been noted that workers who are belonging to a trade union has seemingly been disproportionately targeted for dismissal. There's mounting evidence that suggests that apparel factories are using the pandemic as a cover to attack workers' freedom of association. In a new Business and Human Rights Center report, it highlights the phenomenon of union busting and unfair dismissals of garment workers during COVID-19 and looks at cases in nine garment factories in India, Bangladesh, Cambodia, and Miramar, where nearly 5,000 unionized workers report being unfairly dismissed. In a majority of the cases, the factories blame COVID-19's impact for the dismissals, but as workers report, 
unionized workers were unfairly targeted in two of the factories. And actually in two of the factories, they made new hires of non-unionized workers shortly after the last ones were laid off. In another case where workers were dismissed just hours after union representatives had requested factory management increased protections for workers against COVID. And in another, workers were dismissed three days after registering in the union. Finally, in one of the most egregious cases, a young woman union leader was arrested in Cambodia and jailed for 55 days after posting on Facebook criticizing the factory's plans to dismiss union members during the pandemic. So the International Trade Union Confederation reported a global crackdown on trade unions with at least 53 countries restricting human life, rights and labor laws during COVID-19 pandemic. Increasingly enough, we may not just not know the full effects of union busting until factories start recalling all of their laid off workers and they reopen and see who they rehire. Justin, obviously this doesn't bode well for garment workers' rights. What do you think about the recent developments and will they intimidate workers from speaking out about unsafe working conditions? Yeah, it's a good point, Mary. Um, I mean, uh, you know, union busting and a lack of worker voice um, in global manufacturing is still a, a massive problem. Uh, as you know, through our own audits that Intertech undertakes, we commonly see a lack of freedom of association, worker management dialogue and, and, and problems uh, around that whole area. Um, you know, let's just hope that the more progressive manufacturers out there, which there are, and we see those, um, view workers not as a commodity that can be pushed around and, and used, uh, but instead see them as their most important assets um, and get rewarded um, for that by by their customers. So yeah, and it's an ongoing problem uh, that we're, we're going to see. Um, so yeah, let's let's see over the next coming months uh, and years how that changes. And um, and so yeah, so my second article. Um, now this one um, came from the the Eddie Newsroom. Um, it's about a British uh, on, online uh, retailer called ASOS. They're going to require their third party fashion brands to comply with new ethical manufacturing and supply chain sus sustainability standards if they wish to be listed on its uh, website. Uh, this comes after it dropped a well-known brand over allegations of human rights abuses at a supplier factory in the UK. And um, ASOS has today asked all its third party brands listed on its site to make four new commitments covering transparency and worker rights by the end of this year. Uh, now, these commitments I was reading include the transparency pledge, which requires signatories to publicly disclose information regarding all manufacturing sites in their supply chain and also to comply with country and regional uh, laws around modern slavery. Now, third party brands account for around 60% of the lines listed on, on ICE's website at any one time. So that's, that's a huge number. And in the same article, it was saying Zalando, which is another European online fashion retailer, also recently introduced mandatory sustainability declarations and audits for the third, for third party brands on its site. I mean, it lists more than 2000 brands on its platform. And it said that those who do not meet its standards are unable to provide or un, unable to provide credible improvement plans will be delisted from um, 2023. 
Now, I think I think this is a, um, really start to close a door that has been wide open for far too long, because essentially, you know, anyone can produce and sell a product on various global and send it on various global shopping platforms where there can be almost zero checks on the environmental and social credentials of, of that producer on that, on that site. So, right, Mary, I've got a question for you. Have you ever ordered a product from a shopping platform? that is, you know, three or four times cheaper than the branded version and thought to yourself, I know this comes direct from the factory and I really worry I could be supporting unethical working editions. But in the end, you just end up clicking in anyway because it's just so easy to do. Well, Justin, first of all, um, I think this is really great. Um, what you're bringing up here is correct that it's so easy for um, people to get products out there that you think are um, produced ethically because you audit them from a site online that is um, on the up and up. But, you know, to answer your question, my answer is I have not. I'm actually one of those weird people who still pay for music too. Good for you. Yeah, well, maybe that's because I married a musician, but even to a further extent, I can tell you that I'll even go out of my way to make sure that the products I buy are not inferior and they don't come from exploitive conditions. I'll give you a quick, quick case in point. Last year, I wanted a specific watch band for my Apple Watch that was manufactured by a luxury brand. Won't name which one. Well, said brand had the exact same band in its local store. They told me they couldn't sell it to me because it was part of the display item and they couldn't break it up. Turns out that watch band is discontinued. They searched all other stores in the United States, told me they couldn't find it. Um, so I went online, started looking for the band, and I came up with a bunch of knockoffs of the same brand that cost so much cheaper. Wow. You had a leather, but all it was is simple colors. It wasn't anything that said the brand's name on it. I didn't want to buy it. When I went back to the store, I'm telling them that and like, you know, why won't you sell this thing to me? I could buy it for like $20 online. The woman at the store looked at me. And she said, well, why don't you just order it that way? It'll be cheaper. Yeah, I was kind of shocked on that. Yeah. So this story kind of does have a happy ending in the fact that I went on to Poshmark, which is a reselling place site, found the exact same watch band and purchased it for a, cheap, a little cheaper than I would have got at the price, but it was authentic and I got exactly what I wanted. So not only did I end up doing something with reusing, I also didn't buy the cheaper item. Well, looks like I need to follow your standards, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's not easy, it killed me. I'm glad I did. So that brings me to the second article I wanted to discuss. Okay. With the pandemic leading to store closures and falling sales, so many retailers are canceling orders or demanding discounts from suppliers, which obviously affects the livelihoods of tens of millions of workers in the sector. This Reuters article discusses a recent report by the Clean Clothes campaign titled Underpaid in the Pandemic, which states that garment workers worldwide have lost between three to five billion dollars U.S. in wages between just the months of March, April, and May. Those losses are in Southeast and South Asia for those three months, and they estimate that workers were receiving 38% less wages. And in some cases in India, it was up to 50% of less of their wages. 
The clean clothes campaign is urging brands and retailers to stop passing the buck and publicly commit to ensuring that all workers in our supply chains receive what they're owed. The clean clothes campaign said a lack of data limited the research to just seven countries, Bangladesh, Cambodia, India, Indonesia, Myanmar, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka. But the situation was probably no better in other low wage areas. It's also, also worth mentioning that China wasn't even included in this report. So they extrapolated the data and researchers estimated that the garment workers worldwide had lost between 3.19 billion to 5.79 billion US dollars in the, just the first three months of this pandemic. Wow. Yeah, I know. The estimated $500 million in wages had been withheld just in Bangladesh and more than $400 million in Indonesia. There are many different brands such like Adidas, H&M, Primark and Ralph Lauren in conjunction with unions and the International Organization of Employers announced a working group in April which was convened by the UN to help manufacturers pay these wages. Many retailers such as H&M, Inadex, Levi's and Target have already pledged to honor payments to facilities for canceled and already produced orders. Justin, do you think that most retailers are doing all they can to protect downstream supply chain workers during this pandemic? And do you think by doing so, they'll see a backlash from their stakeholders? Yeah, Mary, it's, it's a good article, a good question as well. Um, you know, I think, as we both know, it's not just a, a pandemic-related issue, this. Um, I mean, the balance of power between, between buyers and suppliers it's always been very one-sided. It's been like that for 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 a couple of decades. Uh, the, the lack of total manufacturing cost analysis, poor purchasing practices, and and sometimes weak and even non-existing contracts will always provide the buyer with an opportunity to to potentially wiggle out of of moral business or potential legal responsibilities. And you know there are some very good obviously uh, uh, buyers out there that behave um, morally, um, but unfortunately there some that don't. So I think it's pandemic to show that this type of behavior by you know, a minority of buyers, it showed in a concentrated time frame early this year and, and, and it, it was exposed to, to a wider audience. And I think that's why we're, we're seeing a lot of these articles on, on this subject. Um, it, will there be a backlash? Probably not, I think history, can, can, will show that. Um, but I have no doubt on a positive note that the CEOs of tomorrow will be under more pressure to be responsible, particularly on the, these subjects, as, you know, because really consumers, investors and market competition are, are all big drivers for, for business driven responsibility. So, um, you know, let's keep following the story and, um, you know, see how, again, this one progresses uh, for the rest of this year. Um, yeah. Indeed. So, yeah, so that and that brings me on to my my last question uh, out of the ones that I was reading this month. Uh, the the other one that sort of picked up my my interest was from uh, a, an, uh, a journal called Fresh Plaza. Um, global fresh produce grower Jupiter Group um, have consolidated their plans to provide fully traceable fresh produce to consumers around the world. By signing an exclusive agreement with Denuto, uh, a trade technology solutions platform, they will implement blockchain 
traceability for the group's core range of fresh produce. Um, the Jupiter Group's new partnership with Dimutu will enable each piece of fruit to have an independent digital identity. Wow. Yeah, I know. I couldn't believe that when I read it. Um, the end consumer can simply scan a QR code to gather the product's key supply chain data using their mobile phone, which which I think is unbelievable. When you think about the, men, the, the millions of individual pieces of food and fruit, I, I thought that was incredible. Yeah. Now, I'm not an expert on blockchain. Um, please don't ask me to explain exactly what it is, Mary. But what interests me about this article is the move that the food industry is taking in increasing traceability. I mean, I, for one, am um, making more informed decisions about the products I purchase. And if blockchain can help me quickly and effectively get data on, on where and how a food product was produced, I'm sure I will change my shopping, um, shopping habits. But I was thinking it does throw up some moral dilemmas. I mean, do I really want to be in a supermarket holding an apple in each of my hands and the barcode scanner tells me one apple has been made in superior ethical conditions that has a really big carbon footprint, but the other apple was made under unethical conditions, but has a very low carbon footprint. What to do, Mary? Do I buy the pear instead? Um, so, you know, do you think as consumers, Mary, we can get overloaded with information on ethics and sustainability and can get easily confused? Uh, should we just trust brands that they're doing the right thing so we don't have to make those decisions? Well, just a couple of things here. First of all, just go to the fair trade chocolate, leave the fruit all alone. Um, secondly, then I also want to thank you for not asking me about blockchain as well. <laughs> I don't know anything, just having trouble explaining the process myself. Um, but yes, I'm of the same mindset that more information is good, ultimately. Well, it might not be important to consumers at large. I think it engages a sustainable customer at a higher level and brings about a loyal client base. And as consumers become more aware of what goes into their products and how they're produced, I think it'll solidify brand, brand royalty in the long run. Yeah. Now, I don't know how much down the rabbit hole I'm gonna get with each apple, but I probably would take a look at, okay, the organic apples versus your conventional apples and try to figure out with a little bit more knowledge now than I do today saying, oh, well, organic must be better. Maybe it's not You're, and yep. for the reasons that you bring up. But I'm glad you brought up this article because I don't want this to be a totally depressing podcast. And I think this final article dovetails nicely into mine, which is also for, which is from Consumer Goods Technology and it discusses how Starbucks has expanded its digital traceability tool to track the origin of its coffee beans. Very similar to your last one. As, so the company first technology piloted this technology in 2018 with farmers in Costa Rica, Colombia, and Rwanda. Right. And similar thing, by scanning a code on a coffee bag or entering a serial number, consumers can have the ability to trace the origins of their coffee by using their smartphones and learn more about its journey from the farm to the cup. Yeah. And the mobile app reveals details about where the coffee's grown, its country of origin, the citizen information, along with the important stuff that we care about, like tasting notes, brewing recommendations, and insight from other store partners. Mm. Starbucks' responsible sourcing program is called Cafe Practices and was launched all the way back in 2004. And it's a set of their social, economic, social, 
environmental and quality guidelines of how coffee should be ethically sourced. It was developed in collaboration with the nonprofit Conservation International, who also helped collect feedback from coffee farmers to help Starbucks further leverage their traceability. So this platform enables the coffee producers to also learn about where their coffee went and what it became, which is kind of important to a lot of these farmers because growing coffee for them is more than a job, it's their passion and life's work. Yeah. Now, Justin, I know this might sound a little sacrilegious here, but I'm gonna be honest, I don't drink coffee. Oh, dear. I know it's especially, you know, being an American, it sounds even worse, but um, does it make a difference to you knowing that Starbucks can trace that cup of coffee that's sitting on your desk right now down to the location and the farmer that produced it? Uh, you're coming up with some great questions today, Mary. Um, I, th I think over the last few years, for me personally, it has come, it has become more important. It has. And you know, ignorance is bliss, um, but with the industry w that we're both in uh, and the media, you know, you can barely walk around a shopping centre. I can't, you know, without visualising all the workers that are making those products in the different shop fronts. Um, so it is important to me that a product, raw material, can be traced back to source. Yes, and more yeah, and more and more it's impacting, I think, on my, my family's shopping behaviour as, as everyone um, has more information and knowledge and awareness of, you know, how and where, you know, products are, are, are sourced and, and the risks associated with that, you know. Um, so, yeah, let's, you know, let's see more apps, certainly where you can scan a product and, and the social environmental performance pops up. Um, but it needs to be something simple, you know, as we know, is it sort of a, a red, amber, green, uh, a good, a bad or, or, or something, you know, mm. so because, you know, as you know, as consumers, we need something quick and easy so we can make informed decisions. But yeah, it's important for me. And I think for the next generation coming through, it's going to be just a standard thing. It's not something they have to think about. It's just going to be part of life, part of business, part of society. So yeah, some good articles there today. Yeah. It was, yep. Indeed. See you next time, Mary. Yeah, same here, Justin. Enjoy your yep. day. I will. And thanks for everyone that's listened today. Hopefully speak to you on the next podcast. <laughs> great, great. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Mary. And uh, thank you, uh, the listener, to taking the time to listen to this podcast. Um, give us a follow. Give us a like wherever you listen. Um, follow us on social media. Thank you again for listening to Assurance in Action. Uh, if you would like to receive the Supply Chain Assurance newsletter, uh, please uh, click the link in the description of this podcast. I will include that link uh, as well as a link to a few of the articles referenced in this podcast. And as always, have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you.